This morning I have chosen to preach from one of the Psalms, Psalm 30 to be specific. Normally when we read the Psalms, we read them as if they were Shakespearean, Elizabethan literature, mainly because we probably grew up reading them that way through the King James Version with the these and thous and the shoulds and shouldn'ts. In this case, I'm going to read, however, from a passage or a particular translation from Eugene Peterson I've read before from The Message. We get lost in translation, as they say, unless it's spoken in a vernacular that we can understand. So when it went from the told word, the storied word, into being written by the Hebrew faith, we fail to remember that that Hebrew language was very coarse and common, just like everyday language for us on the street. They were mostly shepherds and and farmers and merchants. They weren't intellectuals. And so the language reflects that, and it has this sort of guttural sense to it, if you've ever heard Hebrew. But when it gets translated into Greek and then into Latin, something gets lost, finally into English, especially the King's English. So this morning I want you to hear this psalm. You can read along with it, but it may not seem to reflect what I'm reading. I want you to hear this psalm as something that is especially real in everyday language. In other words... It is spoken as we would speak it. It starts on a high note. I give you all the credit, God. You got me out of that mess. You didn't let my foes gloat. God, my God, I yelled for help, and you put me together. God, you pulled me out of the grave gave me another chance at life when I was down and out. All you saints, sing your hearts out to God. Thank him to his face. He gets angry once in a while, but across a lifetime there is only love. The nights of crying your eyes out give ways to the days of laughter. He's on top of the world. We all know what comes next. When things were going great, I crowed, I've got it made. I'm God's favorite. He made me king of the mountain. Then, then, how long is it before that then? Then you looked the other way and I I fell to pieces. I called out to you, God. I laid my case before you. I prayed, can you sell me for a profit when I'm dead or auction me off at a cemetery yard sale as if everything is a deal? When I'm dust to dust, my songs and stories of you won't sell. So listen, be kind, help me out of this. From the perch to the bottom, to the valley of the shadow of death, whatever it was then that made this happen. One cannot travel the road of life without going into this place, and one cannot have a life of faith especially without having this same experience. And however long it is, 40 days or 40 nights or 40 years, it takes 
to get there, it will happen. But then, back up the other side. You did it. You changed wild lament into whirling dance. You ripped off my black mourning band and covered me with wild flowers. I'm about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you. God, my God, I can't thank you enough. Someone said that there are really only two kinds of prayers. Thank you and help. Help me, God. Thank you, God, for this gift. Turns out that everything in life has its own cycle like this. For everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. A time for every purpose in heaven, the birds sang. I think Peter Seeger composed it. But the writer in Ecclesiastes wrote it, the wise preacher, for everything there is a season. And that is so true when it comes to the seasonal faith that we live with. It's true for everything. It's true for every cell and civilization. It's true for every relationship and economy. It's true for every day and every epoch. It's true for life and faith. General Motors, Robert Mueller, Brexit, everything except maybe Alabama football has cycles of up and down. (laughs) In Anne Lamott's new book, Almost Everything, about hope in the face of loss and suffering, she points this out by telling about a YouTube video someone sent her. She writes... It was a home movie of a five-year-old girl sobbing beside her baby brother who was sitting up with the slight rolling motion of an inflatable bop clown. He must have been about one. She alternately sobs to the camera that she doesn't want him to get older, then stops to cuddle him, gazing at him like a suitor and voicing tenderly that she loves him so much. He is the most precious baby in the world. Then sobs to the camera that she doesn't want to die when she's a hundred. Then cuddles him and gushes that she loves his little smiles. I think this pretty much says it. We are consumed by the most intense love for one another and the joy of living along with the grief and terror that we and our babies will know unbelievable hurt, broken bones, bad boyfriends, old age, both and, the good and the bad, side by side. One moment, thank you, God, for everything. The next moment, help me, God, help me. As I said, the life of faith is especially like that. You cannot ride the wave of absolute certainty and joy all the way through life because the wave that you are riding is not the whole ocean. Sooner or later, that wave will curl over us and crash us on the rocks. Some people of faith, mostly new faith, are surprised by this. They think that once you believe in Jesus, you should be able to ride the Jesus surfboard on top of the rave all the way through life. 
But when the crash comes, they crawl away saying, well, I'm not sure about this God thing. It didn't turn out the way I expected. The psalmist cries, he made me king of the mountain. And then he cries, then you looked the other way and I fell to pieces. This is creation. This is the creation that God has made. This is this is, how, these, this is how things work. Up one day, down the next. Good and bad, side by side, life and death, a process of evolution. And evolution would not work without life and death. It takes life, birth, life, death, rebirth. Birth, life, death, rebirth for the process of creation and evolution to happen. And that's the process that we evolve as spiritual and emotional human beings up and down, up and down. And, and the hope of this, you see, is that when we're, when we're in the downside, when we're at the bottom of the U-curve, we can hope that we are not there forever. We live in the faith that something will draw us up out of it. It's true for every relationship, for every time you join the church, for every new job, for everything new you do. You start out with great enthusiasm. Something happens and you feel great about it. And then the next thing you know, something happens and you're in the stormy sea of chaos all alone. And all we have to hold on to then is some thread of hope and faith because that's all we have to hold on to. And there is no proof. Only the witness of those who have gone through this before only the witness of the scriptures, only the witness of the life of Jesus, only the witness of our psalmist. But that is enough. Our friends, tradition, the church, the spirit of God, it is enough to buoy us up and to keep us from going under. With faith as small as a mustard seed, and hoping against hope, we can survive. We discover there what grit is all about. We do the chemo one more dadgum time. We give our marriage one more year. We plug away. Basically, it's about learning how to bob, like a human cork clutching at our life raft of faith and hope long enough to ride out the turbulence until another wave comes and lifts us back up. This is why I picked this psalm on this first Sunday of Advent. It is about what is always coming to us, and that would be the cycles of life. It is a raw and human, human and vulnerable poem of a person who owns up to it all, from the perch on top of his wave and then the crash down into the valley of fear and danger and darkness and then in time lifted back up into a new perch, a new start, a new beginning, a new becoming, a new day dawning. So we come to Advent, starting a new year, liturgically speaking, a new cycle. It is my 14th Advent cycle with you, my 14th Christmas with you at Riverside, and yes, we've had our ups and downs, but personally to me, 
Even though Anita and I share great sadness about leaving at the end of time, that is June, and fear and trepidation about what might come next, personally I feel like we and Riverside are in a good place, if not on top of the wave, we are on the way of being lifted up. Which is why I so appreciate this season of Advent, which means coming, something new is coming. And our celebrating this gives us a way to celebrate all of the cycles of ups and downs that come with it. We come again to the beginning and know it again for the first time, in a paraphrase of T.S. Eliot. We know it again for the first time, and Advent again gives us a chance to know what this cycle is about for the first time. When Nancy, my first late wife, and I started going to church again after the high school, college sabbatical, we were, um, we had been married three years in our mid to late 20s. We had no idea what being a mature grown-up was all about. I'm still working on that, by the way. <laughs> yes, I had accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior uh, in high school, early high school, uh, at Young Life Camp, and enjoyed that lovely, warm, cozy, loving feeling, but it had long since worn off. What I was discovering at that point was that life was hard. Marriage was hard. And we went to church looking for some help, needing some help with the looming issues of life that, like a flood, got closer and closer to us. I was just then starting to become conscious, busted, I know, in my late 20s, conscious of suffering, particularly our suffering, particularly my suffering. Trying to have children, there were infertility issues to begin with, then two miscarriages. Eventually there would be four, one at five months. We eventually had two beautiful children, but that's another story. That's on the next peak, right? On top of the normal marriage stress of learning how to grow up in your 20s and learning is just not about me, I had a new job. And it was not the job that I would spend my life doing. I'd started out as a Methodist but became Presbyterian in junior high school only because of location. We found another church near our house, Sardis Presbyterian, who, by the way, was programmed by Jocelyn Hill, who used to be the Christian educator in this church. No small world, huh? Nancy had been Lutheran. The day we made it to this church in our late 20s, it was a church only because it was close to us and it was sort of snowing outside and we thought it was sort of romantic to go to church that day. Little did we know how hungry we were for it. And we stumbled into Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlotte the first week in December, and I still vividly remember my first impression. We walked into the doors, which were closed, even though it was before worship started, and the sanctuary was hushed. There was a sign out front that said, Be silent, be still, for this is the house of the Lord. And it took liturgical worship very seriously. I had no idea what that meant. 
As I walked in, I noticed that there was this flying saucer-looking thing about six and a half feet off the ground, right in, like in the same place in the transept as our, as our table here. I wondered what that was, and I noticed it had greenery sticking out all around it. It was a circle hanging in midair with four purple candles sticking out of it. I didn't know then it was an Advent candle until I read it in the bulletin. I guess I remember an Advent candle somewhere in my life, but I had no real sense of its meaning. And then as we sang O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the acolyte, like Mr. Lockwood this morning, comes down the aisle with his lit rod, which I learned later was called a taper, dressed in funny robes, which I learned later were liturgical robes, and stopped in front of the flying saucer and put his taper up to it, and it had been V'd out right where the wick was, and was able to light it while all of us, supposedly singing, were watching it nervously to make sure that it got lit. We do this here too, by the way, if you've noticed. Will it light? Will it light? The first time I saw this, I thought I was watching a game of cricket, which I know nothing about. I was at a complete loss. I guess we did it somewhere, but I couldn't remember. It was Advent, and I had no idea what that meant. Thought it was pretty cool, though. Later I learned that Advent starts with the beginning of the liturgical year. Another way, a word that I added more confusion. What does liturgical mean? And I learned later, really only in seminary, that liturgical means the work of our people. Our, it's the way we do things and the how we do things and the work we do things. Why we wear purple or why you don't. Why you wear robes. Why we sing the hymns we sing. Why we order our bulletin. It's the liturgical way we do church. It took me a while. But I came to understand that that was important as was the Advent wreath and the way we do worship. The way we keep our calendar. The way the clergy holds us accountable it held me accountable. And the cool thing about liturgical worship is that it honors the seasons of the year. Not so much winter, spring, summer, and fall, although it overlaps those, but the seasons of life, the seasons particularly of Jesus' life. We wait for the coming. He's born a newborn babe. In the middle of the darkness of the winter, the star is seen. The wise men go to the manger the next thing you know, after some time in that epiphany, we start moving down the U-curve toward the valley during Lent for 40 days. The deepest part, of course, is the crucifixion of Christ on Good Friday. And then in two days, in three, but it's really two, we are zipped back up to the other side to the Alleluia Chorus and Easter, and we ride that wave at least for 50 days until we come to Pentecost, and then we ride that out until we're back around again with all the little holidays like All Saints Day in between. We ride that out again until we come back to Advent. It gets us started. It is the oscillating waves of, of both life and death in a sort of bipolar kind of faith, only we don't want it to be that way. We don't want the oscillations to be like a five-year-old girl sobbing about her son. What we want in our life of faith and hope is to 
flatten them out a little bit. And faith and hope is what helps us flatten them out because it gives us a perspective that wherever you are in life is not the end. Even if it's death, it is not the end. And with that perspective, you see, you can enjoy, you can enjoy the highs. And you can grieve and mourn the lows, but it doesn't drown you. It is the job of Advent to remind us with the threads of hope and faith to hang in there. Because wherever we are now will not last. And that's good news if you're at the bottom and not so good news if you're at the top. But you hang in there because it all comes around again seasonally. Turn, turn, turn.